Open with me your scriptures to Matthew 7. Our verses for study tonight are verses 7 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's word. Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which, of, which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. This is the word of the Lord. There are many deeply comforting texts in Scripture that are attended by marvelous promises to extend hope to our faint hearts. And here is one of those incredible passages Concerning prayer, there are three simple, straightforward commands that are given to us. And yet, there are magnificent promises attending those commands. John Calvin wrote, Nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than the full conviction that we will be heard. Let me turn that around. How many of you have gone into a conversation with whomever or wherever it might be, assuming that you are not going to be heard and how discouraging that is? Luther wrote, Jesus knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we are so small that we dare not pray. And this is why Christ lures us away from such timid thoughts to remove our doubts and to have us go on confidently and boldly. Our Lord is the embodiment of the very words that he speaks, a son of constant faith who was always given to prayer. He prayed richly because he believed in the richness of his Father. Now Christ here is arousing us from a laziness, from a sloth, and from the inconceivable loss that attends prayerlessness. I want you to hear that again. The inconceivable loss that attends prayerlessness. I think all of us at one point in our Christian life, we have looked back upon a period of relative prayerlessness and we have been struck by the inescapable sense that we cannot have that time back. Well, imagine if you extended a season of prayerlessness for years 
And you came to the end of that season and you realized that there was eternal loss from the fact that you had remained so prayerless. Well, I want us tonight to approach the text in this way. First, we want to open up the three simple commands that our Lord makes with the promises that are attended to them. Second, I want us to see the foundation for such praying, which is the Father's character. And then I want to close tonight with several exhortations that we'll draw from the text and its truths. So turn with me to verse 7. Let's read it again. Ask, and it will be given to you, Jesus says. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Well, the first thing that I want you to note is that these simple verbs here, ask, seek, and knock, are in the form of imperatives. They are commands. And better yet, they are present imperatives, which means simply that we are always to be asking and seeking and knocking. It's a continual command of our Savior. It's a continual charge to the activity of asking and seeking and knocking. And these three words are used to teach us the practical beauty of prayer and the promises that are attended to each. So let's take the first, ask. Now, there are times when Let me put it bluntly, we ought to be ashamed of the things that we ask of the Lord, right? But we ought not to be ashamed of asking. There's a big difference between the two. Coming to the Lord does involve intercession, asking. We come to the high and lofty one, the scripture says, but also to him who is what? Who dwells with the lowly and the contrite. The Lord delights to hear our petitions, the petitions that we make of the riches of Christ. But when we are asking of the Lord, how much of our asking is God-centered rather than us-centered? The exact point that Dean was making this morning, MMI, me, myself, and I. I wonder how often that represents the bulk of our praying rather than a God-centeredness. Do we pray, Lord, give me a hunger for you? Do we pray, give me something of a thirsting after righteousness? Give me the love of your will and of your kingdom, not my own little kingdom. Our asking is to be framed by the manner in which Jesus taught us to pray. Let your eyes jump back to chapter 6 and verse 5 and following where we have Jesus unfold for us in this Sermon on the Mount what praying is all about. That when we ask, we are to be asking for things that would hallow the name of God. And so, did you not find, if you were praying for General Assembly, and did you not hear when we were praying for General Assembly, that we were asking, in short, for God to hallow His own name in what would happen at GA? That we ask for such things as build His kingdom and furthers His will, 
that we ask that he would forgive us our debts against him, that he would free us from bondage to sin, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, the Apostle James puts his finger on the kind of praying that we often engage in. James chapter 4 and verse 2, James writes, You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you receive on your pleasures. So James says that either we neglect to pray or that we pray from selfish motive. So we are to ask. But notice the second command. The command is to seek, and surely it is not simply that we are to seek things from the Lord, but that we are seeking the Lord himself. Prayer is a seeking of a face-to-face audience with the Lord, the uncreated eternal God drawing near to our created soul. What a remarkable thing. Prayer is seeking the giver, and the byproduct of being with the giver are his gifts. We have surely not begun to learn to pray aright if we're not seeking this union with God himself in prayer. When we begin to read the 23rd Psalm, what do we hear? The Lord gives me all that I ask for and I shall not want. No. The Lord is my shepherd begins with relationship. It begins with intimacy. The third command is to knock. You know, we have knocked on so many doors and we've knocked on so many places in our lives that it doesn't occur to us anymore. But what is knocking? Knocking is, in some cases, a form uh, simply of respect of another space. And so we knock before we enter But knocking is that which we do to gain the attention of someone whose audience we seek. And Jesus uses this beautiful word and says, come and knock at your father's door. It requires our engaged courage to go to the door and knock to know that access will be given. How simply yet how clearly the Lord sets these wondrous promises of these prayers before us. Askers receive, seekers find, and those who knock gain access. That's the promise of Jesus in the simplest of terms. That if you will come and you will ask, he will give. If you will seek, you shall find. And if you come and knock, he will open. What a precious promise. But we ask the question of ourselves, with such great promises attached to prayer, 
Why will we do so much in our lives, so much even in the Christian life, except to pray? I want you to hear that question again. Why will we do so much in the Christian life? At times, we will serve so laboriously as to be drained to the last ounce. And yet we will remain prayerless. Confession time. Do you know how easy it is for a minister to prepare a sermon? And before they start to prepare, and while they prepare, and after they have prayer, prayed, uh, prepared, to neglect to pray from beginning to end. Do you know how easy that is? It's just as easy for you to do the same thing in your calling, whatever that may be. And so what are some of the reasons attended to why we do not pray? Let me give you several to examine your own heart. Prayer requires that we stop and be still. We don't like to be still. Many of us, indeed most of us here, have some places in our hearts where we fear to be still because we're not desirous of dealing with what we will find when we are still. We must stop and we must be still and we don't like to do that. A second reason is that we will need to become undressed in our soul before the face of the one who sees and knows everything. In other words, it requires the deepest form of vulnerability. That too is uncomfortable. Another reason why we do not pray is that at times we are in the in the pattern of practicing our pet sins, and they have damaged the fellowship and the intimacy between ourselves and the Lord. And we are not ready to repent of our pet sins. And then a fourth reason is that it is hard work to be with someone in deepest communion. We must know them and we must trust them. And that's hard work to engage in that kind of conversation. And yet we have the greatest of aids in the scriptures themselves to teach us to learn how to pray. Our, our Psalter in the Old Testament, though it is the hymn book of Israel, it was the prayer book of Israel first. All of us need that old-fashioned priming of the pump. Those of you who are old enough, as, as I am, remember going to camps when you are young, whether it was a state park or wherever you were traveling. There, there were many places where there was no running water, and if you wanted water, you went to the, to the pump, and you began to pump, but if you didn't prime the pump, it wouldn't work. And the Scriptures are given to us to prime the pump of our hearts. The Psalms are the believers, 
of our ancient church priming the pump of our souls. I have laid on the communion table tonight uh, ten or so beautiful tools that will encourage you in your prayer life. Some of them are more ancient. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer in the late 1600s and early 1700s, wrote, I think, Margaret's 600-plus hymns. Is that right? He was also a gifted minister of the gospel, and he wrote a book called A Guide to Prayer, and it's marvelous. The book The Valley of Vision is a collection of Puritan prayers. And don't let the word Puritan turn you off. It ought to excite you. Beautiful prayers that will wonderfully engage our hearts. So the three simple commands with promises attended to them. But in the second place, I want us to see that our Lord sets before us the true foundation of what persistent prayer means. It is the wonderful divine character of the one to whom we pray. Look at verses 9 and 11. After Jesus in 7 and 8 gives us the commands and the promises attended to them, he turns to a parable and he says, Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The illustration is drawn from the everyday life of our parenting. Now, Jesus is saying that you and I, his audience, we are what? Evil parents. <laughs> we like to think of ourselves as good parents, don't we? But Jesus rightly says, compared to the Father who gives great answers to prayer, good gifts, you are evil parents. You evil parents are good. Sinners and selfish as you are, you delight in meeting the needs of your children. Let that sink in. How ready we are to meet the needs, the true needs of our children and our grandchildren. How much more then will our perfect and wise Father in heaven give good gifts to his children. Jesus is making that logical argument from the lesser to the greater. Evil parents delight to give good gifts to their children. How much more then the Holy One to his children? And Jesus here teaches on this glorious subject that we can never get enough of, the awe that is to be ours of this good news, that this God of exacting holiness takes out adoption papers on you and then lays the price of that adoption upon the shoulders of his son and gives you the rights to his household and to his name and makes you an heir of all that belongs to him. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is essentially saying. That this kind of father, how can he not give such good gifts to you? 
Now let me do a bit of sanctified psychology here, if I might. As children, our prayer lives, we sometimes, without thinking about it, pattern our requests of the Lord the way we patterned our requests of a parent growing up. Whatever our parents' temperament or mood might have been, if we had a critical and mean-spirited father, we might come and make a timid request and really have hope for much of nothing, right? But if we had a much different father, a father who was patient and kind and generous of spirit, we would come boldly with confidence and with great hope that what we ask of him, we might be receiving. There's a great danger in you patterning on top of your heavenly father the pattern that you experienced as a child. I encourage you not to do that. See through that when you begin to do that. And similarly, Jesus tells us that we must know the character and the temperament of our Heavenly Father if ever we will rightly approach Him. Let me make an observation. If you grew up without a father or with a difficult father or with an awful father, there are those throughout their lives who refuse to call God Father because they choke on the Word. That is a difficult thing, admittedly. But we must get through that. We must come to a fully biblical, personal, persuasive, right understanding of who our Heavenly Father is, or we will not approach Him well. He is not like our earthly fathers. He is so far beyond even the best of fathers that the comparison actually breaks down. One of the great and central troubles in the church and in our own individual lives is that we neglect so often this grand view of our Heavenly Father and how cherished by Him that we really are. And so notice the contrasts of evil versus good in 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. Stone and snakes are contrasted with bread and fish. Evil versus good. Awful fathers versus wonderful fathers. His wisdom, his love, his power are infinite. And he makes no mistakes in the way... He fathers his sons and daughters. His goodness is revealed in his desire to give these gifts. There are no stones mixed with his bread, no snakes among his fish. There is something that uh, I came across this week that I had forgotten. If you go to Luke chapter 11, there's a parallel text where the text is almost essentially the same, but with this one profound difference at the end. In our text, 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In the Luke 11 passage, the end of it reads this way, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Isn't that remarkable? Not just give the Holy Spirit in the sense of a regenerating influence at the instantaneous start of the Christian life, but on a constant basis, this infilling of the Holy Spirit day by day as we ask the Lord for His presence. And here is what I found as I went back to that passage. I happened to be using my mother's old Bible that was part of uh, what she gave to me upon her death. And in my mother's Bible, at that very point, there's an arrow pointing to that phrase about the Holy Spirit. And she wrote in her own hand, the apex of our need. The need of the Spirit of God, hour by hour, day by day. Our highest need, I want you to hear this, our highest need is not the next thing that you will ask for or the next problem to be solved. Our highest need is the presence of God the Holy Spirit dwelling so richly in our hearts as Paul tells us in Romans 5 that he pours out the love of God into our hearts. Our highest and greatest need. That ought to fill many of our prayers. And so the unceasing goodness of our Father results in these beautiful gifts, this confidence to cry that what He will give is always and only good, and that the foundation for that kind of persistent praying is His perfect character. Well, in the last place tonight, I want us to close with several exhortations that flow from the words of our Savior. First, we need to see the great need of, of a constancy, of a sustaining divine help for our lives. We need to see from what Jesus is teaching us here the constancy of our need for divine help. The assumption of Jesus as he teaches us how to pray these three staccato commands is that we are broken, frail, finite people whose power is utterly insufficient for this life. And that's why we are bid to pray. Asking, seeking, knocking arises from a humble place of inescapable need. It will never go away. We show perseverance of spirit and prayer because we are desperate. When we lose our sense of desperateness in the Christian life, coordinate with it is a lost sense of prayer. And here's a problem with many of us, indeed all of us at some level, but some of us more than others, we believe ourselves to be independently competent. 
And that's a fundamental lie. It's a mirage. The next breath that you take, the next word that I speak from this pulpit is a God-given breath and word, period. Not independent, not competent in myself or yourself. God gives us breath. He keeps the virus and he keeps the bacteria in your body from overwhelming you. Why, dear ones, are we who are present tonight not among those who passed away with COVID-19? For all of a host of human reasons, there is one reason. The viral load of COVID-19 did not overtake my body nor yours because of the hand of God. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates cannot buy extended life. You may know that Warren Buffett has pledged to give away all of his money, hopefully before he dies, and apparently he's halfway there, which is good news. But Warren Buffett understands this, but not for religious reasons, but simply for practical reasons. He understands his wealth will outlive him. He can't buy it, an extended life. The electric impulses of our neurological and musculoskeletal systems fire at the beck and call of God. They really do. And we must embrace our immediate and constant need of his comprehensive provision. We like to think of ourselves, if I can use this analogy, as 17-year-olds in God's house who are ready to be on our own. All we need is God as a backup if we get into trouble. No. We're three-month-olds or three-year-olds who have a constant abiding, unending need of our Father's immediate help, never ceasing. So the first exhortation is that we must have divine sustaining help. We must never forget that, and it is part and parcel of what drives us to prayer. A second exhortation is for us to be reminded of the perfect wisdom of our wise Father not to give answers to foolish, mistaken, and harmful requests. Most of your parents learned that when they were raising you. If we are a parent, we have learned it in part. That wisdom is defined in parenting at times by refusing to give what is requested. Let us admit that some of our prayers go unanswered. Why might that be? Well, the answer is simply not yet, says the Father. The answer is coming, but not yet. And in my wisdom, I know when I will answer. 
Another answer is that you have yet to have eyes to see that I have already answered that prayer. But in your ignorance of my doings, you have not yet seen what I have done. Another answer is that if he were to answer our desire, he would allow our ruin and our misery, and he loves us too much to do so. Another answer is that you have yet to learn to seek my kingdom first, and so these other things will be added to you, and I have withheld things from you that you may long for me and my kingdom first. Dear believer, we are to be thankful that the providence of God in his wisdom does not spoil us in prayer, nor become a curse to us. So let me close tonight by asking some probing questions of our hearts. Perhaps if you're taking notes, you can write several of these. Do we pray that he would make us less worldly? Do we pray that our fondness for material things would diminish and the love of people and his presence would increase? Do we pray for a heart to seek his kingdom and righteousness first? Do we pray more that God would fix our problems or lead us to holiness in the midst of them? Do we long more for the comfort and ease of our daily lives or for the conversion of our children, our grandchildren, our extended family, our neighbors, and our friends? Would we rather have ease or the conversion of those to whom our hearts are drawn? Which do we long for most? How many of us pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. And then we go out into our daily lives and into our public lives and we throw ourselves right into the path of temptation. How many of us feebly pray, Lord, make me a stronger believer? But we don't use the means of grace to become such. The Olympics are upon us in two weeks, three weeks. If you've seen any of the Olympic trials, it's, it's a heartrending thing to watch even at the Olympic trials when people are trying to go to the Olympics to represent the US, but it's that person that comes in fourth in the Olympic trials that knows that perhaps by two one-hundredths of a second or two hundredths of a point, they will miss representing their country. 
and all of their labor and effort will feel to many of them as for naught. But think about the, the coach and the athletes who will not lift the weights, who will not put in the miles or the repetitions, who practice only when they feel like it and won't study the game, the strategy, or the opponent. And can we say that of ourselves? That we want to be more earnest believers. We, we don't want to want it badly enough. The legendary Alabama football coach, Bear Bryant, was interviewed after a rare loss. And this tells you two things um, about what the reporter said. One, that it was a fair long time ago. And then secondly, that it's the Deep South. This wouldn't happen anywhere else. The interviewer, who was a reporter, said, Coach, the Lord just wasn't with us today after a rare loss. To which Coach Bryant responded with a growl, the Lord expects us to block and tackle. <laughs> there you have it. Are we blocking and tackling in the Christian life? The simplicity and the beauty of asking to receive, seeking and finding, knocking and the door being opened. Will you actually block and tackle in your prayer life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of the challenge of the words of our Lord. Father, we confess to you tonight and ask for your forgiveness. Each of us knows the degree to which we are prayerless. Forgive us our trespass. And do embolden us by these promises and commands to run to the goodness of our Father. We pray it through Christ who has opened the way. 